Hi, I'm Andrew, and my topic this week, Wolf, is code-generated documentation. Woohoo! So I'm going to talk about that for a little bit, but first I will say a couple more things about the Overcast situation, the situation with the podcasting application Overcast, iOS application that is made by Marco Arment. So people who have been trying to use Overcast the last week have noticed that I think it's probably worse than it's been before instead of better. Mm-hmm. Our attempt at doing a workaround did not succeed, mm-hmm. so that was I, I'm a little chagrined that I, I talked all last week about, hey, we've we've got a workaround, we've got a solution, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. The working the, the workaround, the extra podcast feed that we tried did in fact break after we probably after we shipped the last episode. Yeah. So it it's something about our feed. The the episodes in Overcast do not show the right dates. Whereas, for example, our feed does seem to work in, in iTunes and, and, and in other podcasting applications. Right, right. All the others it works in. That's kind of the, the weird right. thing. It's not like we just screwed up the date format, which granted, the RSS date format is kind of weird. I mean, it's, it's very numeric, but it includes like the week midday name in it, like Sun for Sunday. It's really right. weird, but, you know, we... It doesn't, it doesn't need to, but right, right. it can. But we, how, we toe yeah. the line on that, you know. So I think... It might be something along the lines that ours is is absolutely like midnight in terms of I think GMT time, and then has a an offset to put it back to to when we do it. Or so it's midnight our time, but it's done through an offset. Anyway, I, it, that might be an edge case in in Marco's parser, but I think I will I will probably spend some more time on this, but not anything major because the trouble is when we try to do our own sort of separate. RSS feeds for for testing. I'm pretty sure those everything goes into the database, into his database. It, they never, we never get back the information that we put in. Mm-hmm. It's always it gets put in the database, then it comes back out. Because I will see things cached in a way, even when we provide the the URL to the RSS feed, that makes it actually very hard to debug. Yeah, because we have to wait at least like an hour, possibly several hours, before new the new data that we put in will be shown back to us. And so, yeah, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. I mean, my personal recommendation at this point is if you if you really want to listen to our podcast, you know, you're going to need to use something else to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame. Um, now, I think when we when we ship this one, the latest episode will come back and show again, which is not something that was happening this week. I think it might not have been showing this week because of some of the the stuff we've been trying to do debug wise. So you may get to back to the point after this episode ships where you see the latest one. You may not. Uh, we really can't get too much to it. You know, we'll, we're we're more than happy to work with Marco um, to to figure out what's what's going on with his parser that's that's not doing the dates for us. But I'm I'm not willing to spend you know days and days uh, figuring this out you know for him. So that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything anything else, Wolf? Before we I move on. No, get right on to it. Yeah. Okay. So I have used comments in my source code files that can be used to generate uh, excuse me, documentation for that source code for a long time. And I think a lot of other people have been doing that as well. You can see some of the details of it in this NS Hipster article, nshipster.com slash documentation, all lowercase, where he kind of goes through what it is and how it works. If you haven't used it, it's generally you generally use the format slash asterisk asterisk for the beginning of the comment and then asterisk slash the normal one. Because normally you use slash asterisk 
for a multi-line C comment mm -hmm. in your Objective-C code, you put an extra asterisk at the beginning that tells Xcode, that tells any, any utility tool that you want to use that you should actually now pull out some information from it. And you can just put text in there that's then used as a general description of whatever it is you're commenting. You can comment classes and methods and properties. You can use specific fields, generally prefixed with, with an at sign for more specific things. I use at param and at return myself for the most part. There are other ones. There are lots of other ones, actually. And when you look at the NSHipster article, it says, in Objective-C, the documentation tool of choice, it's AppleDoc. Using a Javadoc-like syntax, AppleDoc is able to generate HTML and Xcode-compatible docset docs from .h files. Now, I, that might be wrong, actually, because when I look up AppleDoc, AppleDoc is a separate tool that is that seems to be currently maintained by uh, Tomas, I'm going to mispronounce this, Craigwell, Craig um, and that doesn't sound familiar to me. I think what's actually being used is HeaderDoc, mm -hmm. which is what Apple says it's using, which is something that's, that's maintained and, and run by Apple. And you can see it. I'll put a header doc, uh, the, the entry for the Wikipedia entry. And there's also a header doc user guide from, from Apple itself. And even more so, there's a header doc tutorial from our, our friend of the show, someone we mention a lot anyway, uh, Ray Wenderlich. That tutorial is actually really great. It gives you a lot of details about the header doc, which I will not be getting into here. What I think I used to use, and it actually got me a little confused, I used to use Doxygen, yeah. actually to generate my headers, to generate my documentation from the headers, because that had more stuff in it than HeaderDoc did back in the day. Mm -hmm. You could also use Doxygen, from what I remember, to get that kind of information, not just from headers, but also from .m files, which I found very useful. I'm not sure that HeaderDoc still does that. Um, but, but in any case, you know, what's really nice about, about Apple's HeaderDoc stuff right now is, well, and there seems, I think there was a way to generate this stuff. You no, know, there's a way to have... Xcode use header doc, doc set files automatically if you sort of put them in the right place or something like that. I think that's in Apple's documentation somewhere. But I don't think they generate them. I think you still need to generate them on your own. So you can use the header doc tool or whatever it's exactly called that's included with Xcode, but you have to do it yourself. But what they did, what Apple did recently was, and recently might be as far back as Xcode 4, I don't know, a couple of years now is they said, well, if you have this, these comments in your code, we will auto-generate the documentation that can be shown in Xcode itself in the various places where Xcode shows documentation. And that's when you sort of, I think it's command, what is it, command, shift on, let's see, oh, option, option click on a method name. Mm -hmm. And then that will show you a, a pop-up which gives you the documentation and that documentation is generated from your comments in your code. So that's really good. I really like that aspect of what Xcode does. It will also show it in the, the utility panel. If you have your, your method selected and you go over and there's a little, uh, what is it, quick help tab in that that will show you that. So that's really nice. And I've used that for years now. The problem with this is that it doesn't give you everything that Apple's documentation has for its code. 
And that's that's unfortunate because I really want all the things that you can that Apple shows that you can do in their documentation that shows up in Xcode and it shows up in their in their HTML files, etc. For example, I there's there isn't a lot of formatting support. And one thing I saw in in the in a hipster thing was that they have header doc comments that have back um, what do you call it? like the the single quote, but it's the backslash single quote. I don't know what, what you call that. Um, is that backslash? Around word. Is it, you mean like the uh, backtick? Backtick, yeah. right. They have that around words, and then in their HTML, that shows in sort of the code format. It's like a, a, a Monaco format mm-hmm. in their in code. But when I tried that in Xcode just now, it doesn't do that. It just shows the backticks around it. So that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so you can't get code format in there. It doesn't auto-link to methods in your code and possibly not in Apple's code either. So one thing I really like about Apple's code is it can mention another method in its description, and it's got a link to that right there, so you can go straight to it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to do that. I'm, I'm not sure if it doesn't do it for Apple's stuff, but it certainly doesn't use it, do it for your stuff, which means that you, you don't have sort of a full range of documentation. You just have text. Uh, sort, of, sort of dumb text, and there's there's a C thing, an at C that you can put at the end. But I, you know, I really want what Apple does. I really want you to be able to mention methods all over the place in there and have them go to it or, or class names. And there's also no formatting. There's no bullet points, for example, like Apple can do in its in its code. And so I really, you know, I wish they would update it. Hadoop has been around forever. They are making some improvements to it, but I don't think they're making the kind of improvements that I would like. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to hear about the new Swift documentation format Yeah, that is also mentioned in an NS Hipster article, nshipster.com slash Swift dash documentation, all lowercase. Because that format seems to be different, seems to have more capabilities to it. It does seem to have some formatting. You can put bullet points in things. But it's not documented at all. And that article in NS Hipster did say, hey, when we learn something new, we'll update this article. I suspect they won't. Actually, because, well, you know, maybe they will, but it's really hard to remember, hey, go back whenever you find some new information on it. It's much more likely that you'll get new articles by somebody else about it. And if we get those, you know, we'll mention those later if we find them. So that, but that does seem to be something that they're doing something completely new for Swift, which is cool, which, and which is also makes sense. Apple tends to do things, Apple tends not to take it's really kind of old, neglected stuff, and then, you know, completely reinvigorate them. They tend to say, well, no, now we're going to leave that behind and do something new. They do that with their uh, with their unit testing framework, for example. They said, no, we're not going to update OC unit. We're going to complete, make something completely new. What I would wish for, of course, is that they would make something really new that's really great, that does everything I want, and then, you know, do the same open sourcing they've done with HeterDog and, you know, give us this thing, let us use it. I don't know, considering that with Swift, they, they're kind of, it seems flying a bit by the seat of their pants. Anyway, they're, they're rushing to, to, to finish up this thing, and, and they shipped it maybe before it was quite ready. That feels like what they did with their documentation format as well. And the problem with that is that they may never get back to making it something you know fully polished and fully ready for us because their, their plate is so full with Swift stuff. But I do, you know, I do hope they get to it. And I do hope they, they give us something new and something a little better. And that's pretty much all I've got. Yeah, so I, I guess 
I don't know if I ever used Heterdoc directly, but I, I have used Doxygen in a few projects, and right. mm-hmm. yeah, and I've been um, pretty pretty happy with it. I, my main gripe is the um, the output format, the output of documents uh, don't look great, and actually the it's, it's terrible. But like my my favorite like outputted documentation in terms of beauty it probably has been like like Apple style kind of formatting. But in terms of like output generation, in terms of functionality, in, ter- uh, in terms of uh, the static HTML generation, has been plain old like old school Java draw- Java doc that had like the the two iframes yeah. where yeah. you had like the class list on top and the method list on the bottom, and um, and then the HTML descriptions on the, on the, on the right hand side. And yeah, that was just really effective for me. And I don't even think it <laughs> generates that. That crappy iframe stuff anymore, but man, it was really useful. It really, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll uh, jump into my topic, which is future-proof data formats. Yep. So this is the uh, second episode of the year. I was it was a bit of a toss-up whether I would talk about something more topical, which was uh, you know asynchronous events versus threads of the last episode, or something that's more topical. I guess they were both kind of topical because this is kind of you know the future, and so here we are in the new year. So I mean. Maybe you just don't, you know, think about the past. Hopefully, you kind of look to the future. Is the future ever not topical? That's that's very metaphysical. I think I'm going to have to go and take a nap now. Um, <clears throat> so I have experience in this matter, and uh, one of the fun experiences here is that way back when, and I even know when. Um, I think the late mid to late '90s, I wrote a classic Mac OS system extension called Inbigin Event Queue, and I'll provide an archive.org link to the old uh, webpage for this thing. And uh, for everyone playing at home, it is, in fact, a Simpsons reference. But this was a system extension. It used to be that, oh, man, I don't remember the details, and I, I could cl- click on my own link to, to get it. But I, the, I remember the general idea of why I wrote this thing, is that the original uh, Mac OS... Uh, keep in mind that this was all these just design constraints were based on like the 128k Mac, so I think it had enough space set aside for holding 20 system events or something like that. Um, so basically, you could you could and practically this and it wasn't really moving the mouse around; it tended to be more keyboarding type stuff. So you could start typing, and if your Mac was frozen doing something, it could basically it had room for 20 of these that it could stash aside at interrupt time before it does start dropping dropping them. And so it turns out this is actually, uh, it was bad for a couple of reasons. Number one, 20 if you're a fast typer, and the Mac being, the old classic Mac OS being single-tasking multi, uh, operating system, is that it could very easily get to the point where you're frozen faster than you could type out 20 characters. And also the algorithm in terms of uh, how a drop of the the incoming characters was not optimal, so it was it, to cover from this tend to be pretty catastrophic. You had to look at what text was out and fix things up quite manually. So, in big event queue was a, a hack that found the global mem- global memory for this, made it larger, um, and I forget how <laughs> larger, maybe one twenty eight elements or something like that. And uh, so it was like manipulating low memory and stuff like this. And to just make it so you could type a heck of a lot more while your Mac was frozen up, and you it wouldn't your Mac would actually not drop these keystrokes. And the one, th- so this is a kind of a roundabout way to talk about future proofing your system because this was the first example that I that I could think of where I successfully future proofed software. And in big event queue, 
uh, as a, one of the first things it did was it looked to see how big the global event queue size currently was. And if it wasn't 20 or whatever number that was, it wouldn't load because I figured I'm in a bold new future that I don't understand, so I'm not even going to try. And it was, and I was very happy in like Mac OS 8.5, Apple finally upped the limit to like 48 elements or something like that. And my and when I rebooted my system after I installed the system update, I saw a big X mark over my own icon. I knew that I had written some some code that could actually take into account the future and actually worked as designed. And so this is an example of, um, of future-proofing your code. And I'm here to tell you, you can be successful, but as much like the Star Wars thing, uh, don't get cocky, kid, because you generally should not do this. Uh, there's an example also from the old, old, style, old school Mac that there's these things called WDEFs, or window definitions. These were code resources that would describe how windows are, were to be drawn. And so obviously the Macintosh was really a 68,000 class machine, and then it jumped to PowerPC. And so um, slowly but surely, initially everything was, essentially everything was emulated. You had a few PowerPC native apps, but everything else was emulated. And man, I almost think we should do an episode just on on the magic that was mixed mode magic, that the entire like runtime emulation system of the 68,000, it... I mean, Rosetta is very impressive in itself, but mixed mode magic and the emulation system of 68K on the PowerPC, on the Power Max was amazing. But anyway, so end up that it was actually almost a little bit too good. And so what would happen is that um, pretty much, uh, you know, at, at about the time when the Power Max came out, everything shift, shift, shifted to Code Warrior in terms of generating uh, Mac software. And Code Warrior made it pretty easy to generate... Uh, PowerPC native WDEFs. And that, that is basically fat WDEFs that would execute natively in both 68000 and PowerPC. And so uh, because it was so easy, I don't think it was, I don't want to say it was the default option, but at least it was just like a checkbox or something like that. So uh, what would happen is that people writing WDEFs and the, the PowerMax were out, and it was quite clear that eventually WDEFs would be able to execute natively. And so enterprising developers end up compiling their code as native PowerPC, even though the window manager couldn't use it yet. And what ended up happening is that when the window manager finally went native, it all these PowerPC native WDEFs that were this kind of line inactive sprung to life, and guess what? They were buggy. So Apple ran into the situation where if they actually enabled native WDEFs, that the applications would crash. And this was a bad example of where apps where software was written to try to take account of the future and it failed catastrophically to the point where I don't remember what Apple had to do. I think they just like never even loaded native WDFs at all or something like that. It was pretty really? pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they had to you have to add another flag or something like that or maybe a different code resource signature type. Anyway, this that tends to get kind of bogged down in details, but my larger point is that you shouldn't ship software that you can't run. <laughs> and see, because if you can't run it, you can test it. And so this was very easy to do. It's very kind of a, you know, easy to kind of say, oh, I'm just flipping this compiler switch. And this, you know, this is all C or C++ code that, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Well, it turns out a lot. And it had a big, uh, big impact in uh, the classic Mac OS. So that was kind of like the... Uh, 
the code takeaway on this is that don't try to program for the future. Uh, about the best case scenario for this type of stuff is that try to if you are going to do this at all, try to recognize the future like I did with a big event queue where a static number did not match on what I expected and then bail totally. But more than that, it's a game you're probably going to lose, so don't even try. So that was the kind of executable type story about future-proofness. Um, from the data point of view, uh, I have a some uh, war-tested uh, tricks to kind of build data formats that can sp- can effectively span multiple versions. And this is not so much a, I would say it's not even so much an issue nowadays as it was as, you know, as, as Microsoft Word changed file format from one version to the next and, and backwards compatibility was, for Microsoft was such a huge issue that they had this monster file format. But um, effectively, you might want to write software that has a data format that can span multiple versions effectively. So where you can roll out a new version and not everyone upgrades at one time or uh, in uh, heterogeneous systems that you can't maybe enforce that type of upgrade. So I found a, a pretty simple uh, mechanism that works here is that it basically, like all things in computer science, requires one level of indirection. And the idea here is that you essentially have a, uh, you can think of it, well, all of these ter- in terms of dictionaries, uh, in terms of data formats. And it doesn't need to be strictly a dictionary. It could be a binary stream or what have you. But we, well, let's ter- t- uh, talk in terms of dictionaries because it's easier to talk about. And essentially, instead of putting all your data directly into a dictionary of what you want to store, nested one level deep into something like a V1 or version 1 key. And you can kind of think of this like semantic versioning, but for data. And the idea here is that later on, future software could then add a V2 that adds more data as necessary. And the idea here is that older software, much like HTML parsers, will ignore what they don't understand. So essentially, you can have something like um, a, a, a hypothetical here is that imagine you ship a plain text word processor, and that's version one. And in version two, you add the ability to italicize words. And that's something that the plain text version can't understand at all. And you have a choice here. You could say, well, version one, this can't open up version two documents. It sucks to be you. Um, but if you put everything under a V1 key there, all the text there, and store it as plain text, and then store the italicized version under, say, a V2 key, then at least the old version 1 can at least open the document. Now, it will be lossy in that it doesn't understand italicization. So at that point, it gets really troublesome to try and make things that also kind of maintain data in a forwards compatible way when you don't understand what the feature is. I recommend not even trying. So I would. So at this point, it's um, you should write. You should only write out the versions that your app understands. So in this case, the version one, the app who only understands plain text, would read in both version one and version two. And I'm sorry, it wouldn't it would load, essentially load that data, but it would ignore the version two data. And then when it comes to save, it would only write out version one. And that's kind of sucky because it is it is lossy in that it is writing out. Uh, data that is uh, that uh, it's dropping data that it was in the original file, but it should flag this as part of user interface, saying, "Hey, I'm saving this to version one, and uh, there will be some data loss." And if the user wants to go ahead with that, they might prefer the interop more than they care about the the data loss because italicization maybe isn't a big thing. And you can extend the example to think 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 about things like bolding and linking and font and so forth. And you can see how you could build up a version 1, version 2, version 3 of this data format. 
And you might be, I would recommend in terms of ease of programming that you just jam all the data into a V1 and a V2 and a V3. Um, that's, you could do something that's differential where uh, you could um, have something where the plain text was in version one and then maybe all the offsets of things that were italicized was in version two. Um, in general, that's, that would be more efficient uh, but it's much trickier to code to try of like mark up the data as you go and try, kind of do these delta updates to the original data. I would mostly not recommend it because we have this thing called gzip, and gzip is free and it's actually surprisingly good. And so I would just recommend duplicating all that data and letting gzip figure out what the real duplication is and write and say, letting that say, make your data format efficient. So that's it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think trying to future-proof your code and your and your data formats is a really big problem, and it's not something that there are easy answers to. Right. I think it's a it's a balance, and I would I would say I I see what you're saying about especially in the in your code having entirely different uh, uh, sections of code sections of your of your uh, memory uh, data structures to separate those completely. I think it does depend on on what the the file is, whether you want to do sure. it that way. Mm-hmm. I also think even how you deal with it in the app um, will depend on is, is app dependent. Sure, because you know some users, if you were to say, well, should we lose some data and keep it in the first format or or, or, or not save your data? You know, they won't they won't want to deal with that or they won't understand that. And so, you know, sometimes you'll have to, some, some sets of users will say, no, definitely prompt me. I want to know, I want to make those decisions. And some users will say, what, you know, and, <laughs> and won't understand it. And you have to make that decision for them. Yeah. You know, Apple tends to, uh, err or lean on the side of the, of the ladder, what is the, the side of doing things for you silently. I think most of us would say, Oh my God, don't do that to yeah. us. But it does depend on who your app is made for. And I just, you know, it, it's going to be complicated either way. Good point. And I would say that if you, have, if you have to deal with this, just keep in mind that you're going to have a lot of logic to wade through and, and try, to, try to make sure you're handling all of those edge cases. And, you, you know, you can go back to the way I talked about writing unit tests, where you could use unit tests to make sure that you handle all of the edge cases that you might not think of when you're just testing the main path with, yeah. with your human user, human uh, uh, QA engineer, uh, because, you know, it is going to be a grid of, of choices. It's not just going to be like one or two. So, yeah. And, you know, I, for people dealing with this, I generally tend to say good luck. <laughs> yeah, they need it. All right. And we'll see you next time.